Lord, I pray that you will touch each mind and heart in ways that are in ways that only you can, that you would guide and you can even cause people to hear what they need to hear, sometimes even when it's not spoken. And so, Father, we ask that Jesus would be uplifted, that your Holy Spirit would dwell within us, and that your word would be the living word of God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, I'm going to be talking about wilderness revival. And this idea kind of comes here from, maybe you've read the story of Hosea. Hosea is a terrible story in a way. And we maybe don't like to say that about the Bible, but it's a, it's a, it's a heartbreaking story of a man with a woman, a man who marries a woman who leaves him and goes and commits adultery, not seemingly just once. She runs around, it seems like, and, and, and this is parallel to God's people and God's people of Israel. And maybe this could even be a picture of God's people even today. And notice what it says in, in here in Hosea. Um, actually, this is not this is not verse 14. This is verse two to five right here. And then we'll get to verse 14. For their mother has played the harlot. She has uh, she that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns. So here's this woman. She's running after lovers. She's looking to get things from them. She's a prostitute, literally. And it's an ugly picture. It's a true picture, but yet it's also a depiction of God's people that they run after other lovers, other gods, and seek to gain things from them, some kind of benefit. And it says, and make a wall that she shall not find her paths, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them but shall not find them, then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. What a picture. And the good news is, is that God is that first husband. That though at times in our lives, probably all of us at some time, maybe, maybe somebody hasn't, maybe somebody has been faithful continually, uh, that would be incredible. But for most of us, at some point, we've run after other lovers. We've turned away from God. We, we initially sought to follow God, and then we began to turn away after other things, seeking to get some benefit from the things of this world. And then often when we're down, when we feel guilty, when we feel ashamed, when we're at the lowest, we begin to think it, it was better for me when I was connected to Jesus. And so the beautiful thing in this picture of Hosea and Gomer is that Hosea doesn't just give up on his wife. The picture is that God doesn't just give up on us, regardless of what we've done, he still seeks us out. And what do we see? So this is actually verse 14. What ends up, what does God say? Therefore, what is God going to do? Behold, I will allure her. He's going to try to win back the love and affections of his wife. And bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. Isn't that interesting? That God to win back his bride, that Hosea with Gomer to win back his bride. There's something about going out into the wilderness and seeking to allure, to attract, to, to reveal some beauty to her in order to endure this wandering woman to himself. This is something that God does. We see it throughout scripture that his people often have turned away from him. And one of the things we see is that they go then out into the wilderness to that God may allure the people back to him. And as he does that, he's seeking to transform them, to take their eyes off the things of the world, to reconnect them with him. So it's interesting. Um, I'm going to share, share a quotation with you very quickly. Let me see. Um, let me share, yes, this particular quote. Now, sorry about that. So three things happened to prepare Moses 
to be someone who, an individual that would lead people to the promised land. Listen to this quotation here. It says, Moses had been learning much that he must unlearn. The influences that had surrounded him in Egypt, the love of his foster mother, his own high position as the king's grandson, the dissipation on every hand, the refinement, the subtlety, and the mysticism of a false religion, the splendor of idolatrous worship, the solemnity, the solemn grandeur of architecture and sculpture, all had left deep impressions on his, upon his developing mind. Now we're going to come back to this quotation here, but here's the thing. So we get this picture that Moses Moses had been in Egypt. You you probably remember the story. He was in he was in Egypt because he was in his mother put him in a little uh, little ark. The King James version says a tiny little boat. And long story short, the Pharaoh's daughter ends up seeing him, and she they go check. They look and oh, there's a baby, and he's crying. It touches her heart. She then takes Moses to be her own child. But first, she has Moses' own mother take care of him. Beautiful story. His mother takes care of him probably till roughly the age of 12. And then what happens at that point is that he goes into Egypt. Now he had his early upbringing by his mother, leading him close to the God of heaven, the God of earth, the creator of all things. And then he goes into Egypt, this great city, probably the greatest city on planet earth at the time. And so he sees all of the great architecture, all the work of men's hands. He goes through the highest education that that humans could go through at the time. And so he's affected by the things that are all around him to some capacity. He has been impacted by the world around him. Many times we we try to believe that they haven't, that we're not affected by the society, that we are just our own people. But the reality is we are affected by our surroundings, by the people we know, by the books we read, by the things we watch on the internet. We're affected. And so was Moses. And we're going to find out. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 7, 22 and 23. It says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And this retort, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. You remember the story that Moses ends up killing a guy, tries hiding his body, and long story short, uh, the Pharaoh finds out, and he has, to, he has to flee for his own life. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in the bush, in a bush. And here we have, so Moses, you think about this. He's 40 years old. He flees into the wilderness. How many years does he end up spending in that wilderness? 40 years, 40 years of time. And remember, he had been affected by the world around him. He maybe thought that by his own power, by his own military uh, strength and discerning and able to to maneuver in war, you know, that made it might have made him think, hey, I'll kill this guy. I'll kill this Egyptian who's hurting my brethren, and maybe they'll all come flock to me. But they don't. There ends up being, they say, oh, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And he realized, oh, man, I got to get out of here. So he takes off. And 40 years, 40 years he spends in the wilderness. And in that time period, he had to actually unlearn many of the things that he had been educated in, in his worldly education. And you might think, well, wasn't that a waste of time? I mean, 40 years, I mean, so much could have been done. Rather than spending time out in nature, rather than spending time out in the wilderness, I mean, like, God could have done that much quicker. But it wasn't a waste of time in God's eyes. God knew that much needed to change in the mind of Moses so that he would become the man that he was actually called to be. He became, a, he became someone who would tend the sheep. And as he is leading the flocks, if you've ever worked with 
with sheep, which obviously most of us have not, but if you've ever spent time around them, you realize that they are rebellious little creatures. We think of the goats as very rebellious. We think, oh, the sheep and the goats, the sheep are the good ones. Well, they, they are in the illustration, but sheep are rascals to each other. If you've ever spent time around them, they're not kind to each other, impatient and gentle. They smash their heads into other sheep when they want the food that they're eating. They are not kind. They are actually very rough animals. And so it takes time to learn to work with them and connect with them and, and to lead these animals so that they know your own voice. And Moses was beginning to dis discover these experiences in nature that he never could have quite experienced with the greatest human education that he could possibly have. You know, it goes on in that same quotation to say what had happened to him, that he had been molded to some extent, his habits and his character, his education in his former time, but that needed to change. Well, what would change that? Time, change of surroundings, and communion with God could remove these impressions. It would require on the part of Moses himself a struggle as for life to renounce error, and to accept truth. But God would be his helper when the conflict should be too severe for human strength. So what do we see? We see that Moses, this man of God, needed 40 years for three things to change him. Number one, time. Time would change him. A change of surroundings and communion with God. And sometimes we may need all three of these things in our lives at some point. Sometimes we need to change our, that time can actually heal and transform us, you know, time and healing. When you think of, obviously, you know, some of you may be in medical school and, and I, even if you're not, you understand the same concept that time, for instance, if you're cut, if you're in an accident, or maybe you just accidentally cut your finger or your hand and it doesn't just heal. It's not like you look at it and there's a cut and then it's healed, right? Like a miracle. Most of the time you don't see a miracle in healing. Typically it takes time to heal wounds. And all of us have, whether it's physical scars or emotional and mental scars, and it takes time to heal these things. God can give us the victory. God can help us to forgive somebody else. But typically there's a process of healing that actually takes time. And, you know, Fadi and I had this accident, my wife and I had an accident in the state of Oregon, it was probably 2005, although we weren't married at that time, we were working in ministry together on a, um, we were doing some ministry work on a team, and we were driving through a, a very hilly area in Oregon, and as we were driving, we it was hilly and very curvy, you know, hilly areas typically have valleys and you might drive lower in the valley. And so we're going around corners and they had just, we, we have a very different experience out East. I, I'm originally from Michigan and in Michigan, you don't worry about it when it's just rained. The roads are fine after rain, but I know out West that if you go months without rain, you, what can happen is, and you probably well know this, many of you, if you're in California, that if it hasn't rained for months and then you get a rain, sometimes the roads are slick like ice. Whereas out east, we get rain all the time. I mean, not, not all the time, but we have consistent rains generally throughout the year. So it's washing away the oil from the roads and you don't have these very slick times when it rains. I mean, you just drive relatively normal during rain. You worry in ice, but nevertheless, so there we were in Oregon and we, it had just, there had just been some, some rain and we were driving and we came around a corner a little too fast for this, you know, slick experience and the car began to fishtail. And then my body was driving at the time. And so she tried to correct and she overcorrected. And then we started just fishtailing both directions. And I tried to, you know, I wanted to tell her, Hey, take your foot off the brake so that we could correct, you don't, you know, when you're really sliding, you don't want your, you don't want your foot to be on the brake, it actually can make it worse. But all I could get out was Fadia, I, you know, it just couldn't totally get the words out. And then we're going down the road sideways, I mean, literally sideways with the passenger side aiming the direction that we're going, and I was in the passion, passenger seat. And as we're going sideways down the road, praise the Lord, nobody was coming the oncoming direction. But we went across the road, 
and there was a mailbox that was like a tank. It was literally like a tank. And I saw it coming at me. Actually, we're going at the mailbox, but it, as it were, it's coming at me. And I realized this thing's going to smash into the window where I am. So I, I put my arm up to brace myself for the impact. And finally, we just smashed into the thing and the glass shattered. And as it, as it came in, you know, it just went right into my arm, the glass did, and it shot across, went into my uh, skin on my head, the glass just entered in and shot across, hit Fadia, I believe also. And ultimately she smashed into the airbag, which I might've had one too, I can't remember that, but she for sure hit the airbag on impact. And then, you know, there's smoke everywhere. And so I'm thinking, man, there's gonna, you know, this thing's gonna light on fire. This is gonna be dangerous. So I said, get out of the car. Uh, for a moment, I think we were probably almost out of it. But then I, I jumped out of the window of the car. It's funny that I didn't even think about opening the door. <laughs> I just jumped out the window. Uh, I guess I guess in those times you're just not thinking clearly, but she, she just opened her door and got out. I actually could have done the same thing, but instead I jumped out the window. But um, long story short, so we get out of the car and I'm, my head's just bleeding and uh, blood is just coming out of the ears and, and Fadi looks at me and thought maybe I like, damaged my eardrums or something like that. It wasn't that. It was just literally that the glass went into the actual flesh of the ear. So, but it, but then both sides, it must've hit the airbag and then shot back and actually hit both sides. So I had blood coming out of both sides and, and uh, Fadia, she was weak. And finally the ambulance came and, and they, she, you know, we were, we're just poor Bible workers at that time. And, and so we thought, man, I can't pay to go to the hospital and, and, I said, no, no, I'm not going to go. And, and they, she said, yeah, I don't think I'll go either. But she was literally passing out at that moment. And so they, they literally had the stretcher behind her. They lowered her down and took her to the hospital, which was a good thing. And by the way, uh, car insurance covers it. I didn't realize that at the time. <laughs> they would have paid for everything. Uh, so we didn't have to really pay anyway. But long story short, Fadia had the impact cause retinal tears, her retinas began to tear and they, you know, they feared detachment at that point. And so ultimately she had to go in, had to have laser surgery to kind, kind of, uh, I won't go into all the details. She had to have laser surgery on her eyes. I had to have some of the, the glass, you know, pulled out of my ear or my arm, arm, that's where it was. There may still be some in the ear. I'm not even sure, but nevertheless, the whole process of of wounds, it, it doesn't go away. And people, people said, oh, sometimes when you're in an accident like that, it'll take a year for the whiplash to go away. And I was young, I was in my 20s, and I'm thinking, nah, a year, come on. Yeah, right. It's not going to take a year. And sure enough, it took like a year for the pain in the neck to really go away. And it takes time to heal. That's part of life. And so even with Moses, right? Moses, it took time for healing to take place in his life to change who he was. There were these three components, time, and then we talked about the next one, the change of surroundings, three things that help prepare Moses to be the individual that would lead people to the promised land, time and change of surroundings. You know, I think about that. Sometimes we all need a change of surroundings. Now, obviously, some people, they may stay in the same area their whole life, and God can be in their life. I'm, I'm not negating that point. But many of us, there are times, and actually, especially when it comes to the Adventist church, I have never seen a group of people move so much in my life. I came from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was raised in what's called the Christian Reformed Church. All of my education from high school till college was in the Christian Reformed Church, and I had zero desire to go anywhere in my life, travel, go to other parts of the world, zero interest. And then I become a Seventh-day Adventist and just travel the world. And this is, it's, it's not, most Adventists don't travel as much as myself and my wife do, but yet Adventists, you know, you ask people, oh, where are you from? And it's a common like, uh, now, uh, what do you, you know, because people, oh, I was born here, I went this place and this place and this place, and now I'm here or whatever. This is such a very common thing, and, you know, some of us call that the Advent movement, right? But what changed about the surroundings from Moses was going from a great city of the world with the greatest architecture humans could devise to being in the wilderness amongst 
sheep. You could see how, and by the way, you remember from reading the Bible that the Egyptians, what did they think about people who dealt with sheep? They were the lowest of the low. So here he is doing the lowest menial task a human could basically do from the, from the perspective of the great, you know, educated, erudite Egyptians. So now Moses is totally humbled, spending time with these animals, spending time in nature, but seeing the glories of nature, the vastness of the mountain solitude. And this, this was part of the experience that changed and transformed Moses' life. It began to give him a realization. And, and you know, I've, that's something that I, I, once again, I was raised in the city, raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan, not a giant city like, you know, LA or Chicago or something like that, but still a good sized city. And grew up amongst these things and, and was not a country boy by, by any stretch of the imagination. Yet now I, I do live out in the country and I'm going to share with you some more of that experience, but that, that itself has been, is revealed to me a different dimension of loving God than I have ever experienced before. Not that I didn't have an experience with God. I did. I spent time with Jesus daily, had devotions daily and would share and would witness and study about God. And, and, and these things were very powerful. So I'm not saying that you can't have a relationship, but there's a, a different, there are different dimensions of love and different dimensions of appreciation that I believe are often missed in this modern world that has lost a lot of its contact with the natural world. We're so connected to things like, you know, cell phones and computers that we miss out on something that is in nature, you know, just being so my wife and I, two, well, three years ago, I guess we bought land in the country and next to the National Forest. And we've been, like I said, we've been traveling for nearly 20 years now. And I grew up in the city, but had a love for the country. And my wife also had a love for the country. And and we, we prayed about it. And for years, I actually wanted to move to the country, but God just didn't open the door. And don't move until God opens the door. You want to see the movement of God's hand. You want to know that he is the one guiding in all of your paths. And finally, he did open the door three years ago for us to buy just raw land, timber. I mean, it was just, just a forest next to the national forest. And so then we had to go in and we had to, we spent months felling trees so you know taking the chainsaw going to the trees and cutting them down learning that process and and through the midst of the process I learned about different kinds of trees and as we had some guys come by who were considering buying some of the trees we decided not to sell them but they you know would tell me the different kinds of trees because I couldn't tell the difference I mean I could see like oh yeah pine or a deciduous tree but which was what? Oh yeah, that's an oak. I can tell. But what kind of oak? I couldn't tell. I had no idea. And then they would tell me, they're like, okay, that's a white oak. That's a black oak. And I, I, I'd look at them like, well, how can you tell? They look the same to me. And he'd say, oh, this, this, this. And just beginning to discern the distinctions between various trees, getting to know them, learning their names, learning various plants out there, even learning edible plants that are all around. There began to be something very different to nature. Before I knew a tree and I might've even known, okay, that's an oak tree, but I didn't know what kind, but the closer you get, it's kind of like walking through your neighborhood. You, let's say you walk through your neighborhood, there's people and you see them, you see them for the first time. You might say hi later on, you see them again. And then you see them a third time. Now you recognize their faces. You're kind of having a connection with them, but finally you're like, Hey, I'm Chad. And they are, Oh, I'm Joe. And and oh, Joe, what do you do? And so once you get to know Joe and what he does and you know his name and the next time you see him, now there's a deeper level of intimacy than there was when you just looked at him when you walked by. And I found the same thing that it's, it's added a level of intimacy with nature that has increased my love for God and appreciation for him just in a level of an area of my heart that just calls out to praise God in connection with nature that I had never really seen before. I shared before that my wife would say something like, oh, look at that flower, isn't that beautiful? And I'd be like, yep, 
Yeah. Interesting. You know, but not interested really at all. Not interested at all. But now it's totally changed. I see the things of nature. I see a flower and I'm like, isn't that incredible? You know, and I go take a picture and, and it just, it gives me a connection that I had lost by just loving the things of, well, maybe things that weren't so natural, but yet God has a deeper experience. And we're even told that God is desirous that we would learn to love the things of the beauties in nature that he has this desire for us to connect with them and sometimes that change of surroundings can help us to see the world in a whole new light and i realize this is something that can only be experienced rather than right now i'm talking about it you may get okay he had that experience but to have the experience is different than just hear about the experience and this is one of the things that god is going to do with his people in the last days, that they're going to deepen their love and appreciation of God through the things of nature. And sometimes that takes a change of surroundings. You think of some of the people who needed a change of their surroundings to change their life. I think of number one, Moses. We've already talked about him. Number two, the apostle Paul. You think about what Paul went through. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jew of the Jews, and Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And on that road to Damascus, he comes face to face with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It breaks him. He goes totally blind, and he finally says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And, and God tells him, you're going to suffer many things for my sake. Imagine if that's how you entered your Christian experience. God's like, you're going to suffer. And you say, okay, I'll go forward and I'll just suffer. And that's what, that's what Saul did, right? And, but before he went forth to totally suffer, before that, he took off to Arabia. And while he was in Arabia, potentially for three years, he goes there with him into the, this wilderness type experience. And he takes with him the word of God in his mind. Being a Pharisee, it's likely he knew at least the first five books of the Bible by heart. And if he was a Pharisee of a Pharisee, he very well may have known the entire Old Testament totally from memory. So here's Saul, now Paul, who goes off into the wilderness and he has months and years to meditate on God's word in nature, preparing him to be the apostle that Jesus had called him to be. And once again, you think like three years, what a waste of time. 40 years for Moses, three years for Saul, what a waste of time. But it wasn't a waste of time. Because through that process, his experience with his Savior, with his Lord Jesus, became more real. And a living experience that he could bring back with him into the cities to be a living witness to the people that were in those cities that he would go and minister to. So we see that with Moses. We see it with Paul. We see Enoch. You may remember the story of Enoch, that Enoch would go off into the wilderness, that he would spend time communicating with God in nature. One of the things we're told that and the Bible actually tells us that after, after he had his child, his son, he walked with the Lord. That having a child, so there's many things that can actually change us. There are things that change. It's not, not only going out into nature, but for, for this man, he was changed by the birth of his child that began to help him to understand the connection between a father and a child and how this is like our heavenly father and us. And it deepened his experience. But so too spending time in nature was a great spiritual benefit to, to Enoch. And so thinking about this, if Enoch needed it, if Paul needed it, if Moses needed it, we even think of the Israelites. They came out of Egypt. They too went into the wilderness like Moses for 40 years. They needed to unlearn much of their slavery. And you think, well, it'd be easy to unlearn slavery. It actually can be very difficult to unlearn slavery. And it took them 40 years, rather, to, to begin to unlearn these things and prepare them. But they were out in the wilderness, but even when they went into the Canaan land, they're even there. They lived off the land. They lived a pastoral lifestyle, uh, raising their own provisions. And so this was something that even the Israelites themselves needed. Interesting one is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, 
he what ended up happening if you've ever heard maybe uh Don McIntosh talk about it I love to hear Don talk about the story there how Nebuchadnezzar basically goes through the eight laws of health he he turns away from God and well God uh helps to his his mind is so degraded he's so full of himself he's so prideful that he needed to go through the eight laws of health to come back to his mental health right so he ends up going on a plant-based diet he's eating grass like an ox the bible says right uh he goes out and he's out in in nature so you got to get at least enough exercise to get your food so um you know he's must be drinking fresh water from out there and uh you know sunlight hey if you're living out in nature surely especially that part of the world you'd be getting plenty of sunlight temperance he he can't be you know drinking the alcohol and living that lifestyle anymore uh, he gets the air, rest, um, probably when the sun went down, when you don't have anything to light up your life, you end up uh, having, you know, good rest. And ultimately, you trust in God. Because at the end of those days, he turns his eyes upon God. So he too needed these first two experiences. And he also had a change of surroundings that was a part of changing his life. And he even wrote a chapter of the Bible about it. So my hope is that someday we're going to get to meet King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I mean, what a beautiful thought that one of the great, you know, emperors of world history, of one of the great empires of Bible prophecy, that we, by God's grace, hopefully, will be able to meet him someday in heaven. And also the disciples, they needed a change of scenery although they weren't all it wasn't necessarily from you know living in the city they they obviously they were on the lake often some of them various ones had different uh, positions but obviously you have people like peter who were fishermen peter you know james john and so forth but then you have others who you know tax collector levi matthew so different people different things but still even with jesus some people i think they're probably overestimating but some people have looked at the travels of the disciples with Jesus, and they claim that, that Jesus probably walked like 20 miles a day on average. And maybe that's true. I think that's probably a little over the top. I doubt it was that much. But still, I mean, he walked a lot. And so a lot of the time they were out in nature. The disciples were out with him. He was with them on the mountainside. They were ordained on the mountainside. And you think of all the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is there. I mean, it even mentions in the Gospels that he was speaking to them upon the green grass. And that's just a little inconsequential statement. But it's just pointing out that there they were out in nature, the glories of nature that were around them. And that just enhances the experience. Surely they'd probably be, need to be there because so many people were there. Uh, they didn't probably have a lot of areas that could hold that many people inside anyway. But there's something about Jesus' word in nature. We're even told that we should, we should spend time going through the parables outside in nature in the context about like, for instance, if, if a parable is talking about, uh, you know, seeds, we could even go do it out in the garden, actually read about it there, that it makes it more living and powerful and just an experience that we're actually seeing it, not just as a written book, but a living experience right in front of us. There's something about that. And I really believe that we as humanity have gotten so separated from the things of nature that we may be missing things that we don't even comprehend that we don't even comprehend you. If you've ever heard me share, there's a quotation by uh, uh, not Stephen Hawking, uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, the greatest skeptic on planet earth today. And he was in a debate with John Lennox and John Lennox, uh, basically he asked him and John Lennox is like, they're, they're both professors at Oxford. Uh, maybe one of them, maybe they're retired now. I don't know, but, um, but nevertheless, John Lennox, this Christian, this kind of old teddy bear of a man turns to Richard Dawkins. He's not insulting. He's totally kind to him. There, I, I'm sure at the end, I would imagine that Richard Dawkins was touched by the kindness of John Lennox. This was not what you would think of as a, a debate, you know, slamming someone with a Bible or something. But he asked Richard Dawkins, the greatest skeptic in the world, do you ever feel the need to worship? And I would have thought Richard Dawkins, the greatest skeptic in the world, would say, no way, that's ridiculous. What do you mean worship? I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I believe in evolution. Why would I worship? But it's interesting. That's not what he said. Richard Dawkins' response was, when you look at the beauties of nature, and he began to explain, you know, the complexities of the cell and the vast stretches of the universe. When you look at these things, you almost have a desire to worship. 
He said, Carl Sagan felt it, Einstein felt it, and he said, and I feel it. It's interesting that the greatest skeptic in the world says that when he contemplates the things of nature, that it actually causes within his heart a desire to worship God. And I actually believe that he senses it because he thinks about the deep things of, the, of, planet, of planet Earth, of the universe, because he thinks about nature. And it makes his heart begins to cry out to the creator, but he crushes it because of evolution, not because of his, because of logic. He's actually crushing it because he's, he's made a theory to be something he believes rather than what he sees and experiences with his own eyes and his own heart. In his own heart, it makes perfect sense that this was created by a, a, a creator God. But in saying that, what I think is happening is the devil has kept so many of us away from nature so much. And, and because of, you know, this and computers and, and television and so forth, not that these things are innately evil, but because spending so much time with these things has got us so separated from, from nature that we young people may actually never feel like worshiping God. They actually may be so stunted in their ability to have a, a heart that cries out after God because they're so separated from the way that humans were meant to be. I think this is one of the characteristics. And so a change, a change of scenery could actually change your children's life. We're told, and you have the choice. If you ever have children, by the way, some of you probably have already had children who are watching. It may be too late. But we're told that if your children live in the city, it is 10 times harder to help them to be spiritual 10 times harder. And so I would challenge you, any of you have not had children yet, if you do have children, give them a 10 times better fighting chance at being spiritual. We're told especially people with young children should move out of the cities into rural areas for the character building of the children. It's not that they can't be saved in the city. It's just 10 times harder to have the character that Christ is trying to implant within them. So three things that helped lead Moses to be the individual that lead people to the promised land, time, change of surroundings, but those alone did not prepare him. Number three, a communion with God is essential. You could have time and change of surroundings, but still be absolutely lost. And by the way, even you may say, Chad, you could move to the country and you could still look at pornography. You could move to the country and still watch violent, evil films and movies. You could move to the country and still listen to the same evil music. You could move to the country and be totally lost. And I would agree with you 100%. And that's why when we go, we need time and change of surroundings. We need to be even careful little eyes what we see in the country. You could take your children into the country and make sure they have the latest uh, PlayStation the latest video games, the latest iPhone, if you want them to be unhappy, make sure they have all of those things as soon as they come out. And actually, just make sure they have them. Because statistically, we know from the research that those young people are spending lots of time on these devices are not very happy. And so you can choose by giving them a simple life where they learn to do things like plant seeds and raise a garden and, and Learn to be someone who has patience and self-discipline. Because as you plant that seed, it doesn't just grow up into a tree or it doesn't just grow up into a tomato plant overnight. It takes weeks and even months to get these things. And so you can train them to be able to be patient individuals by giving them the simple life that we were created to experience. But the third component here is a necessity, is that we need to have a communion with God both individually, corporately as a church, but in our homes, we need to commune with God together as a family. If you're not spending time reading the word with your wife or your husband or with your children, friends, now's the time to start. You may think like, oh, I'd feel uncomfortable because I've never done that before. There's a lot of things we have to do in life that make us uncomfortable. And often the things that make us uncomfortable can be some of the greatest experiences of life. You know, what did it say? It said there was, in that same quote, it said that he needed time, change of surroundings, a communion with God could remove the impressions of his worldly education. It would require on the part of Moses himself, a struggle as for life. 
to renounce error and accept truth. But God would be his helper when the conflict should be too severe for human strength. Friends, we sometimes, I, I'm a guy, my, if you've ever heard, if you've seen messages on Audioverse, you see that I love righteousness by faith. I love to preach righteousness by faith. And this is still a message of righteousness by faith. But there can be a struggle as for life itself that he himself had to fight. Righteousness by faith doesn't mean you don't have to fight. And it doesn't mean that it's easy to go forward. It was not easy for Jesus to go forward. And it's the faith of Jesus. For Jesus to go to the cross was no easy task. He pleaded with his father, Father, not my will, but your will be done. But if it is possible, take this cup from me. Jesus did not want to go forward, but he went forward. And there is a struggle as for life to become the people that God has designed for us to be. And so friends, it will be, some of you may struggle even with some of the ideas of, of the changes that God has for us. You know, I, when I became a Seventh-day Adventist, it was, and then I left my family, I left the college I was going to, to where, to where I believe God was leading me to, which was Mission College. And it was just a short-term school to learn how to witness to people. And my family was crying. It was, they were pleading with me not to go. It was the hardest experience. One of the top, probably two hardest experiences of my life. My grandparents came over and my grandfather was crying and he said, you made me cry. My friend's mother came over and she was crying. It was, it was absolutely horrible. And yet I knew God was lead, leading me. And I think sometimes what happens is people within the church, within the Adventist church, they hear someone's story like mine and they think, oh, that's what you have to go through because you were in the wrong religion. But me, I grew up in it. I'm, I'm saying this is my illustration. Some people within the church think, so I never really have to change because the way I grew up was perfect. We were Seventh-day Adventists and we ate perfectly and we, we did what all we were supposed to do. And the traditions of my family are as far as I need to go. And I don't need to make any changes because I am a Seventh-day Adventist. And I don't say any of that to be insulting or pejorative or putting anybody down, but I fear sometimes we within the church may not be allowing God to lead us to the next level. Because I feel the, the I, I fear that the, the war will be great for those within the church, but many times they may, be, they may believe, no, I don't need to go any higher than my parents, that I can just continue on with the same traditions and the same ways of life as my family, but maybe God is actually calling you like Moses to a higher level, to a higher experience with God. And it may be a fight as for your life to become the individual God is calling you to be. So what, was, what were some of the purposes for God in giving these people time in the wilderness? Well, one of them was, is that it was to prepare them to be better lights and witnesses to the world. The question is always asked when talk about country living, well, uh, who's going to save the people if, if uh, we all live in the country? I, I don't know if you know, but um, there's a lot of people in America and around the world that live in the country. And do you think any of those ever go to visit cities? Yes, probably almost all of them go to visit cities from time to time. And we should do that. We should not hide in the country and just stay there forever. We should be people who are light to not only the community out there in the countryside, but we need to be a part of ministry that shares the gospel in the cities also. So this is not like one or the other, oh, hide in the country, never come into the city. No, this is, there does come a time where actually God's people aren't even to go back into the city. It's so dangerous and so difficult. And uh, you're beginning to see how that could happen in the days that we're living. But the reality is, is, this is not simply to do that. But we are also told, too, that one of the reasons that God's people were to move out was in the last days is to, to raise their own provisions. This is a quote, for in the future, the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one. So there are different reasons, one of which I think the most important is that we would be a greater light to the world around us. As Because you remember with Enoch, if you've read uh, some of that great book, Patriarchs and Prophets, that Enoch would spend time, he would go and witness to people in the cities, but then he would begin to notice that he was becoming corrupted by the city. And so then he would realize, man, I got to go back out into the country. I need to reconnect with my God so that I be, I'm stable enough that I actually can be a real witness instead of just being like the people of the world. And I'll tell you, I had that experience when I was at, when I was at Mission College. Um, what, what an experience it was. I, I went there and 
without exaggeration, it was in the year 2000. So this was 20 years ago. I, I was there at the Mission College. It was out in the Black Hills of South Dakota, which is one of the most gorgeous places in the world. If you haven't been to the Black Hills, it is unbelievably beautiful there. But nevertheless, we were there at the school. And to us who were there at that time, it was like being on holy ground. We were out in nature. We were away from the city. It was a spiritual environment like I had never seen in my entire life and I've never seen since. It was unbelievable. And the other students, uh, one, of, one of my close friends, who, who's also a popular preacher, if I told you his name, but he said, he said, he said, I'm not a, an emotional guy. He said, but just thinking back to those days, I can almost cry. It was so touching to be there. It was this time and change of surroundings and communion with God. And while we were there, being in nature, I remember I stayed there for like a month before we went into the city and we did end up going and witnessing to people in the cities. I mean, that was what we were there for or to the small areas there. there there's a small city and then there's, we were doing an evangelistic meeting in a smaller town. But I remember going into the city to Walmart to buy some stuff and walk into, you know, we're getting ready to buy our stuff. And for a month, I hadn't been in the city. And back then, the internet was not as popular like today. So you might have checked email, but even that was kind of like not very good connection out in the hills. And went into the grocery store and going to check out. And you have those racks there with the magazines with women with hardly any clothes on. We're not talking straight up pornography, but not far from it. And I hadn't seen that for like a month. And when I saw it, I was like, whoa. I can't believe it. I can't believe they show that stuff, you know? But when you live in the city, you don't even think about it. Or if you're looking at that stuff on the internet all the time, you don't even think about it because it's just so common. It's just such a part of life. But when you actually take time to separate from it, it was like, whoa, I can't believe it that they show me kids walk by that stuff, you know? But my whole life I had seen that stuff. And I never thought that in the first entire part of my life. I never even thought about it because it was just so common to me. But sometimes that change can be very transformative when we separate from the things of the world. And once again, you can say, Chad, you can still look at the trash on your phone. Sure, you can. And if you choose to do that, you can move to the country and look at pornography all day if you want to. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about actually choosing to separate from the things of the world that are keeping us from Christ. Now, there's two responses often to people who uh, think about going forth like God is calling his people in the last days. Number one is there's fear like Lot. You remember the story. So Lot, uh, number one, Lot had the choice. He could have, it's not that he couldn't have been in the country, but he wanted city life. And so he went into the city. And you remember Moses actually had to go to war to save him because Sodom got taken over by multiple kings. They leagued together, took over Sodom. And so Lot was in Sodom. He became a slave or at least a captive of war. So then Abraham has to go to save his, his nephew. He gathers up some men. They go to war. They actually take over. I mean, these are some of the kings of the earth. He actually fights with them, saves Lot, saves the people of Sodom, lets them go home. And you would think Lot would be like, hey, bro, that was thanks for saving me, or hey, uncle, he probably wouldn't call him bro. Hey, uncle, thank you for saving me. And what happens? I maybe ought not live in there. That's a dangerous place to be. But he doesn't do that. He goes right back into the city. And finally, the time comes where God's calling him out of the city, and he doesn't want to go. His family doesn't want to go. And so he loses his children in the city, uh, some of them anyway. But then his wife and himself and his two daughters get dragged, literally dragged out by angels. And even then, he didn't want to go. He didn't want to go. God says, flee to the mountain. He says, uh, there's wild animals out there. Uh, can I just go to a smaller city over there? And God's like, okay, you can go to Zoar. So he goes to Zoar, but ultimately he has to flee to the mountains in the end anyway. But he was afraid to do it. Lot was afraid. And I'll tell you, when I, when I would go out to places like the Mission College, and, and there I was in the wilderness. I mean, you could go hiking into the wilderness and just gorgeous, unbelievably beautiful. And I love doing it. But when I hadn't been there for a while, I've visited often. And when I go back, if I'd been in the city for a long time and I'd go to visit and I'd go hiking on my own, and if I would hear like a snapping of a twig, I know there's mountain lions out there. If I'd hear a snapping of a twig, I'd be like, and I'm just constantly thinking like, there's a mountain lion. There's going to be a mountain lion, you know? There's like this fear to like city slickers, like the animals are going to get me. And, but then after a while of going over and over, I just become in tune with nature and it feels just as comfortable as being in your house, actually much, much better 
being out there in nature. So Lot was afraid of it. But then there was someone like Abraham who he just spent time out in nature. He was the one who he actually loved it. But here's the thing. You may be a lot or you may be an Abraham, but God can turn you into someone who loves the nature, the world around you, the nature that God made for you. God can actually give us all a love for being out there. One of my friends, his wife was not really in tune with it. She didn't love the idea, but she went with her husband and, and it has been such a blessing to her and to her three children. And it's it literally has been life transforming and it will be to all of those who allow God to lead. Once again, little side note, little caveat, don't be fanatical. Don't be crazy. Only go as you see God's guiding in your life. Go read the book, Country Living. It gives you the real balanced perspective. Um, check that out. But so listen to this quotation here. Listen to this quotation here. The instruction is still to be given, move out of the cities. Establish your sanitariums. We'd call those hospitals today. Your schools and offices away from the centers of population. Many now will plead to remain in the cities. But the time will come ere long when all who wish to avoid the sights and sounds of evil will move into the country. For wickedness and corruption will increase to such a degree that the very atmosphere of the cities will seem to be polluted. It's interesting that we're told, we were told then in 1907, over 100 years ago, that our hospitals were not to be in the cities. Our schools were not to be in the cities, right? And our, our uh, well, there's a third one there, the offices. Offices should not be in the cities. So you think, well, Chad, but many of our schools were in the country, and then the city began to encroach upon them. Well, they dealt with that in her day also, and they knew exactly what to do. As the city encroached, do you know what you do? You simply sell. You sell, and then now your house, location, 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 your school, location, 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 is worth a lot of money. So know you know what you do? You sell it for that lot of money, and then what do you do? You move further out, and you can build a better institution, a better school, something, you know, it's the perfect plan. It's like we have been given all the information beforehand. And so this is what was meant to happen. As the city encroaches our hospitals, all we got to do move them out further, right? Sell them to whoever wants to buy them and people will buy them. And then you get to move out further. God has given us these messages that are so clear, so clear, but sometimes tradition make it hard. And also, because I know what happens is when you went to a school, you love that school and you're like, my grandfather went there, my father went there and it becomes a tradition. We don't want to change the location because that would be different than the way grandma did it. And we like that old song, you know, what's good enough for grandpa is good enough for me. Uh, but God doesn't say that in his word. He actually tells us to be faithful to what we know in the messages that we have been given. So I already shared that one. I won't share that now. Um, and so I want to close with this, that speaking of Moses, kind of summing up some of the things that we talked about so far, that God is calling us to have a deeper experience with him like maybe Moses had, like the Apostle Paul, like the disciples, and even really like Jesus himself. And I recognize, as an evangelist, I, I did full-time evangelism for years, and I still typically do one evangelistic meeting a year. People don't mind most of our messages. Most of the messages people are cool with. Daniel 2, telling them God foretold the future of empires, uh, telling people about the beauties of the sanctuary and how it parallels Christ. People like that. Salvation, people like those messages. Even the law. Most Christians will hear the law and they're like, cool, yeah, 10 commandments, rah, rah, those are good, right? But then when you, even the Antichrist, you do messages on the Antichrist and almost everybody loves it. Literally, that's one of the things that gets like people super excited. They love it. I know Adventists are terrified of that when they're like, oh, we shouldn't talk about that. Not every, but some people. But the, the crowds are like, wow, that was so clear. I can't believe it. I've never seen that from the Bible. But then, then when you get to something, two of the messages that people really struggle with are the Sabbath, because the Sabbath means you actually have to do something differently with your life. And I don't mind God telling me all kinds of things. He can tell me anything as long as he doesn't tell me to change anything. And number two, clean and unclean meats makes, makes a whole lot of people angry. And I was one of them. When I heard that, I was like, what? That's ridiculous. And I kept eating unclean meat. And then I got sick. 
And then finally I realized, okay, God's trying to, he's trying to show me something here. But my point is this, it's often the things that we, the, the messages are much easier to just share just a loving, kind message of the gospel and not talk about what's, you know, some of the things that are actually going to have to change our surroundings or our lifestyle, we could say in this context. And so it may not always be easy. And once again, I'm not telling you you need to go do something tomorrow, although I would challenge you to go read that book, Country Living. If you haven't, you could read that tomorrow or today for that matter. Um, but you should go on the hike. That's if I were there, I'd love to go on the hike, but you know, I'm a little far away to do that, but it'd be a good thing to do anyway. And so, but long story short, I want to talk about Moses now. So Moses, God is calling people in these last days, just like Moses, come up to me into the mount. God is calling us to do the same thing. Before becoming the man ready to deliver God's people, Moses spent 40 years communing with God in the wilderness. Before he was to speak to Pharaoh, he spoke to God in the burning bush. Because he had connected with God, he had seen God in nature. A bush that did not burn, though it was on fire. It was not destroyed. Now, I don't know how the parallel works, but I think of the cross too. Here Jesus was going through as it were symbolically here he is connected to a tree and the flames of hell are symbolically destroying him yet he was not completely destroyed though he did die for our sins yet he came forth as the living god who reigns through all eternity who has all power in heaven and in earth moses before he was given the law before he was given the law of god he went up into the mount and he communed with god and before beholding God's glory, his character, Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock. He had these special experiences with God in nature that deepened. Yes, he could have had a spiritual relationship with God in Egypt, and surely he did. And yes, you can be saved in the city. But God wants to, in the last days, bring our spiritual life to a, to a whole new level that maybe we've never experienced before. And the disciples in Jesus, we will close with this. Before being called to their missionary work for Jesus, he brought them up into a mountain to be ordained by him. It was out in nature that their ordination took place. Before the apostles could go forth with Pentecostal power, they had communion with Christ in the mountain in Galilee. And Jesus himself, Jesus before great trials, spent time in solitude with his heavenly father, in the wilderness. And you think about it. Okay, Moses needed it. The disciples needed it. But Jesus didn't need it. Yes, he did. Even the perfect human being, Jesus, needed time of communion with God in nature. And if Jesus needed it in his day, because he went through the time of trouble, actually a time of trouble greater than we will ever have to go through, as he was making his way to the cross, as he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was going through a time of trouble where he was being wrenched away from his heavenly father. And within the midst of all of this, Jesus was spending time. Where did he first experience that? There in the garden. And he was taken to the cross and he gave his life for us. And so, friends, I want to challenge you that maybe, maybe you need some of these, transform, these transforming aspects of life. Maybe you need time, time to heal. Maybe you need a change of, of circumstances, a change of surroundings. And maybe we all need a greater communion with God wherever we are. So all I want to say is allow God to lead you. Will you allow God to lead you in his time? Not in my time. I'm not, I'm not here for saying anything. We are told that the time is going to come where many are going to wish that they would have left the city and they want to leave the city but it will be too late. Do I think that's tomorrow? No, I don't. But that time is coming. For the first time in my life, I can actually see, oh man, I can see what that's like. Or at least, you know, we can see that a bit before, but we can see it even more how these things could happen. And so I don't say these things just to simply scare people. We're told this to be a, a hope, an encouragement, and that we would grow in Christ like we maybe never have yet before. Let us close for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus' example for us. That in his perfect life, we see that he communed with his father. We see in Mark chapter 1 that he went out into a solitary place 
and their prayed, your scripture reveals. And Father, I pray that we too would begin to have a, a deeper experience, that we would have a change of surroundings, that we would allow time for healing, and that we would commune with Christ in you, our Heavenly Father. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you've given us beforehand what is going to happen to humanity. You've told us before in prophecy, and as we're seeing things, it used to be many of these things we foresaw with a, with a prophetic eye in the sense of just looking at your scriptures and saw, oh yeah, that's going to happen someday. And now we're actually seeing it happen today. And Lord, I pray that you would shake us if we are slumbering, that you would shake us out of our slumber, that you would, you would help us to realize that the times are here. The difficult times are here that you would help us not to be of those whose hearts hardened, hardened, but rather, Father, that we would become more loving and kind, more patient, and more zealous to share our Savior Jesus with our friends, families, co-workers, and those around us. Draw us nearer to you, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.